This is NiceAce Now, your source for real-time and on-demand professional learning designed specifically with the independent school educator in mind. A podcast of interviews, seminars, and conference talks to listen to whenever and wherever you like. Brought to you by the New York State Association of Independent Schools. I'm George Swain. Andrew Watson began teaching high school after graduating from Harvard College with a B.A. in Medieval History and Literature in 1988, and he's been working in education ever since. In 2012, he formed Translate the Brain after completing his M.E.D. in Mind-Brain Education. Since then, he's been traveling the country offering insights into the latest developments and practical applications of neuroscience in today's schools and classrooms. This talk, entitled Effective Skepticism, was delivered at the 2019 Nice Ace Brain Conference at the Mohonk Mountain House. All right. Um, The first place I wanted to make, somebody asked me about music. I'll just point, it's funny, I had forgotten that this is true. Uh, Today's blog post on the Learning the Brain blog is about music and creativity. Uh, I tend to write blog posts a couple weeks in advance, and I can never remember when they're going up. So if you're interested in the relationship between music and creativity, that was there today on the blog. So you can go read that. All right, let us think about skepticism. And here's the tricky part. It is very easy to be an effective skeptic in worlds where we are experts. Because we're good teachers, if somebody comes and says, here's a great idea, I think our students should have a new teacher every day. (laughs) You would say, you know, I'm a teacher. I'm here to tell you that's a terrible idea. Thank you, no. In the world where we aren't experts, it's really hard to know whether or not something is true and valid. And because we aren't yet experts in the world of psychology and neuroscience, if somebody comes and says, hey, here's some psychology research, you should do it. It's hard to know. So one thing we could do is just be skeptical of everything and say, oh, I just don't believe that. So the good news is we wouldn't be trapped by the wrong stuff. The bad news is we miss the good stuff. So how can we be effective skeptics in disciplines where we aren't experts? And I have seven steps. I'm probably going to leave a couple out. Uh, but. We're going to do it. Uh, Surprise, surprise. I think the answer is to both do some things and to think some ways. So that's how I'm going to organize this. And the hypothetical I'm working with is you have attended a conference, say this one, and you heard some really cool ideas. And you think, I'm going to totally try that. That, I'm going to try that. My point is you don't need to do this for everything. Only do these however many steps we do (laughs) if you're really thinking of making a change in your classroom. Okay. So the first question to ask is, so the person said the research said the thing. What does the research say? How do you know? Um, So this is actually going to be pretty straightforward. Go get the research. Go get it. How do you know what it is? The speaker should be willing to share it with you. If the speaker declines to share the research, you're done. The blog post should have a link to the research. If the blog post doesn't have a link, that's a problem. If you email the author and you don't get an answer, you're done. Yes? So we're going to actually practice this in just a second. We're going to explore the joys of Google Scholar, which is such a totally awesome, easy way to get research. It's going to make your head blow up. You're going to be so happy. But find out, like you say research says this, whose research? 
Step number one. Step number two, oh, there's Google Scholar. <clears throat> Step number two, here's an audacious question. The speaker said that the research shows this. Is that true? Does the research, in fact, show what the speaker says it shows? How do you know? All psychology research, almost all, begins with a one-paragraph summary called the abstract. It might be a little dense. There might be some technical language in it. But I, it's, a, it's you know, two or 300 words long. You can do it. You really can. You can do it. So read the abstract. You, you got the research. You've got it. Read the abstract. The abstract should say what the speaker says it said. If the abstract doesn't align really closely with what the speaker said, it might be time to be done. Bless you. And because this seems sort of audacious, I want to give you a chance to practice. So here is a claim that you might read in a book that's actually quite well known. <clears throat> uh, I've edited it very slightly just for clarity. But um, the, the author is describing a study. And the author describes the study this way. Hundreds of students in high school English classes wrote essays and received critical diagnostic feedback from their teachers. Half the students received a single extra sentence on the bottom of the feedback. The students who received the extra sentence achieved at significantly higher levels a year later, even though the teachers did not know who received the sentence. This was the extra sentence. I'm giving you this feedback because I believe in you. Yes? So we've got summary of a study. This is something that you could really easily make a part of your teaching practice. You might really think, yeah, I'm really going to make a point of saying that. I can do that. Don't. <laughs> Check the research. Does the research say what the, the author says it said? So the citation in the book is for Cohen and Garcia. Um, you might actually rather go look for Cohen, Steele, and Ross. Well, I'll leave it up to you. Um, so you've got your computers out. Uh, so go to Google Scholar. Go to scholar.google.com. If you don't have a computer, you can make a friend and huddle with the people who have computers. You've got a cell phone, maybe. So you just put a, a couple of search words. So say Cohen Garcia 2014 Educational Theory or maybe Cohen Steele 1999 Mentor's Dilemma. Put a couple words in, and you should get a link to that, uh, to that research. Once you found it, read the abstract and see how well the abstract aligns with that summary. So I hope the most important thing that you're getting from this exercise is it's entirely possible to find the research. There's Google Scholar. You can find it. And once you've found it, you can read the abstract. Sometimes they're a little technical, but you can find it. You can read it. So how many of you did the first one? How many of you found Cohen and Garcia? So this is the Cohen and Garcia abstract. And those of you who read it, you might have thought to yourself, you know, it seems to be a summary of several studies, but
But it's not at like, this is about a study. This is the summary of a study. This isn't the study. That's a little weird. Like, somebody did a study. Why not just cite the study? Yes? But you are not put off. You are stubborn. You are determined. You're not going to just randomly make changes to your classroom. So you kept going. You kept reading. Bless you. And you found that, in fact, um, this is the study. So you went and you found that. <clears throat> and here's what you found. Two studies. Oh, we found it. We found the studies. OK. Two studies examined the response of black and white students to criti oh, critical feedback. This is good. So, uh, uh, response to critical feedback presented either alone or buffered with additional information. Oh, yeah, buffered with additional information. I'm giving you, uh, hmm, OK, I'm tracking here. Buffered with additional information to ameliorate its negative effects. Black students who received unbuffered critical feedback, blah, blah, blah. White students, blah, blah, blah. By contrast, when the feedback was accompanied both by an invocation of high standards and by an assurance of the student's capacity to reach those standards, Black students, blah, blah, blah. White students, blah, blah. Is anybody noticing anything odd? Yeah, so this isn't a study about students. <laughs> this is a study about the differential reaction between black students and white students. Yeah, this, by the way, those of you who know stereotype threat, this is research done under the heading of stereotype threat. That's the interest of the research. That just got left out completely. Um, and you actually might also notice the whole point of the description here is this is a single extra sentence, the sentence, the sentence, the sentence. It kind of wasn't the. It was a two-part, like, it's a two-faceted intervention. You got to do this and you got to do this. If I give you a recipe and I leave out half of the ingredients, that's not good. You can't just summarize a study and leave out half of the steps and not tell people it's about the differential reaction between black students and white students. Also, I noticed, like, I I was projecting my voice. Um, it may have said it later in the article, but it very clearly states like one year later as a part of the result of the study, and there's no mention of a oh, yeah, that's interesting. past in the abstract either. That's interesting. It's actually not one year later. It's at the end of the school year. So my point is, and your extension of my point is, this summary, <clears throat> Joanna will tell me if I'm being too harsh about this. This is in my reading a seriously inaccurate misrepresentation of what the research said. The words in it are accurate as far as they go, but really important stuff got left out. Meaningful parts got left out. If you were to do this exercise and conclude you were simply not going to trust this author anymore, that would strike me as an entirely reasonable response. So if you get nothing from this exercise, but you can find the research, you can read the abstract, and you can decide whether or not the claim that's being made is fairly supported, you can do that. And what I'm saying is don't make changes in your classroom until you've done at least this. More problems, more problems. Um, 
Next question. Are the students in the study your students? Almost all studies in psychology students are of a very particular demographic. Do you know what that is? College students who are taking what course? Psychology. College students taking psychology courses in countries which are amusingly acronymed to weird. <laughs> Western, educated, industrial, rich, and democratic. Essentially all psychology research is college students taking psychology classes in weird countries. <laughs> right? So I teach high school students. So for juniors and seniors, I think freshmen and sophomores in college, that's a reasonable, I'm good with that. High school freshmen, maybe, depends on what we're researching. Second graders, maybe not. So what you want is to find research with participants as close as possible to yours. That's when you really start thinking, ooh, now I might want to do this. By the way, uh, as you know, I don't do rules. Here's as close as I come to rule. Never, never, never change your teaching practice based on research into non-human animals. <laughs> never, never, never change your teaching practice based on research into non-human animals. Do you remember the research that jo uh, Joanna asked you about with enriched environments? Those were rats. They were rats. And they weren't in enriched environments. Right? So uh, non-human animal research is hugely important and helpful in the neuroscience world. Non-human animal research is hugely important and helpful in psychology world. Don't change your teaching practice until it's been tested with people who are like your people. <clears throat> so you got the research. It says what the speaker says it said. The people in it are your people. This gets tricky. And you are bold and sturdy, and I bet you can do it. All research is going to focus on a couple of key vocabulary words. You saw, for instance, the word unbuffered in that study we saw. So what the heck does unbuffered mean? You're going to want to focus on the key words and be sure you know what they mean in your classroom. So I'll give you an example. You'll, you'll review the procedures. And here's an example. If you've read Dan Willingham's magnificent book, Why Don't Students Like School? You know that analogies are super helpful for learning. So uh, of course, if you're going to teach about electricity going through a circuit, you're going to use the pipe analogy, water going through a pipe. It's very standard. Everybody does it. It's great. Uh, but you don't teach that curriculum. You're looking for uh, your own curriculum. Uh, you're teaching math to sixth graders. And you are so happy because you found research by Lindsay Richland, <clears throat> who's working with math with fifth graders. That's a really good matchup for you. Like the participants is good. So she had half of the students learn uh, dividing by fractions without an analogy, and half of them learn with an analogy. So the non-analogy half, they did the usual invert and multiply. It's a system we all learned, right? Not an analogy. Uh, and then the other half learned with the analogy, and you read the procedures, and what that means is. Well, when we say 24 divided by 8, what we mean is, how many times can you take the 8 and fit the 8 into the 24? 
So in a similar way, how many times can you take a third, I'm sorry, a sixth, how many times does the sixth fit into the third? And you know, the answer is going to be two. Hmm? Is that an analogy? I don't think that's an analogy. It's like, I understand why you're sort of using the word analogy. That's an analogy. I don't think that's an analogy. So you might have been excited to find the Richland research. And the Richland research seems to show what it seems to show. But I don't think you can use the Richland research to promote using analogies in the way that you and I use the word analogy. Because I don't think that, like, I get what she's saying, but it's not an analogy. Do you see what I mean? OK. <clears throat> There's a school I've done some work with. They have a fantastic motto. Their motto is, nothing daunts a scholar. Isn't that awesome? I love that. So uh, in days when I'm feeling daunted, I think to myself, no, nothing daunts a scholar, and I pursue. So this next one might feel a little daunting. But don't be daunted. You are scholars. Here's the very daring question I'm going to encourage you to ask. Up here, I asked you to ask, does the research support what the speaker says? Now I'm going to ask you, dauntingly, does the research show what the researcher says it shows? Some of the very best advice I ever got about reading research is once you understand what the question is, once you understand what the procedure is, don't read the researcher's interpretation of the data. Go to the graphs and tables. Look at what the numbers are and draw your own conclusions. You don't need to look at all of them. Just look at the most important ones. And let's go back to the Richland uh, study. So some people learned with analogies. Some people learned without. Um, that's the. Uh, that's the abstract. I actually find the abstract very confusing. I don't really know what it says. Um, but Richland is a very thorough researcher. She's written one of the favorite studies I've ever read. Uh, so she didn't just have them learn and then do problems. She had them learn, and some, there were some easy problems and some medium problems and some hard problems to see if it makes a difference. So for instance, here are the people who learned the traditional way. And of the easy problems, they got 86% right, for instance. Or for the medium problems, the analogy group got 68% right. Yes? So just take a minute and look over that table. Maybe you want to talk with people at your table. What conclusions do you draw about learning with analogies based on that table? Perhaps you see what I see. Here's what I see. So for the medium problems, it's clear that the analogical strategy, what Richland's calling the analogical strategy, is considerably more effective than the no analogy version. That's 68% correct compared to 46% correct. So that was great. Um, but the other two, not so much. One of the three categories of problem was good on the analogy side, but the other two were better on the non-analogy side. So even when you get past the confusion about whether or not that's really an analogy, like whatever you call it, it's not at all clear to me that that turned out to be a productive teaching strategy. And it's not that hard to like go to the tables, look at the tables, see what the numbers are. It's not hidden. The numbers are right there. 
That's my abstract. Um, you might reasonably ask, are researchers, researchers really going to write that? Are they really going to say, we did all this work and we don't have a good answer? The answer is yes. If your data don't add up, Joanna, am I right? If your data don't add up, you publish, we did a lot of work, and what we got is a muddle. I wrote a blog post a couple years ago about a researcher who did work for two years and published, we got a muddle. I got a thank you note from Australia. Okay. I've been doing some small things. I now want to give you two big thinks. I think these are the two most important things you can do if you want to be an effective skeptic. Number one, I'm encouraging you to be an optimistic contrarian. And what I mean by that is you should assume, because it is true, many, many, many people have researched this particular question and they will have come to conflicting conclusions. That is normal. You should assume that it is true. So if you want to do the thing, you should read the study that the speaker gave you about the thing, and then go look for the conflicting research. Go look for the thing that says, oh, it didn't work. And once you've looked it over, you will say either, I'm totally persuaded by the no case. This, this was much better research than the first one. That was good, so you didn't do the bad thing. Or the reverse will happen. You'll be even more convinced by where you started. Uh, I emailed recently with a researcher. Um, he has this cool idea that m drawing a picture of something helps you learn it better than writing it down. So I wrote a blog post about it, and I emailed him, and I said, I'm curious. Uh, have what contradictory findings do you have? Who out there has found the opposite? And this is what he said. I'm sure there are places where it doesn't work. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to find them yet. <laughs> Isn't that great? This is, you want to be this guy. I don't know how to pronounce his name, by the way. It's spelled W-A-M-M-E-S. But I don't know how to pronounce that. Anybody know? So that was one of my favorite emails ever. My last suggestion, <clears throat> uh, I am taking from two colleagues of mine, Stephanie Sassy and Maya Bialik, and they advocate that we be conceptually granular. And let me walk through what conceptually granular means. It's a subtle idea, but it ends up being incredibly helpful. So let's ask an important question. Is technology good or bad for learning? Yes. The answer to the question is, that technology is going to revolutionize the way we think and learn and teach and run schools. It will transform everything about us, and it will make our species better, wiser, stronger, and faster. I'm sorry. The answer is this technology is destructive and brutal and is sapping, of us, uh, sapping us of our vital essences and our so Have you been to faculty meetings with this? Yeah? So the reason we're getting unhelpful answers is that the question is too big. Research can't answer the question, is technology good or bad for learning? We have to break it down into smaller and smaller and smaller component parts. So let's start by assuming it's not good or bad. It's going to be some of both. 
And then presumably, in this case, the, the, the goal of the technology is going to matter. Uh, Quizlet was designed to help you learn, so we would sort of expect positive research findings for Quizlet. Grand Theft Auto was not designed to help you learn. We shouldn't be surprised if there are a lot of negative results for Grand Theft Auto. We're going to see a range depending on the point of the technology itself. Um, the cognitive function might make a difference. Uh, have we talked at all about technology being bad for working memory? You remember this study? Of course, uh, there's a really fun iPad program designed to help astronomy students uh, appreciate um, relative scales. Astro understanding scale in astronomy is hard. So Matthew Schnepps did a cool study about a pinch to zoom program on an iPad. It was hugely effective compared to the traditional teaching method for that. So that program on an iPad was really helpful for that long-term memory. Uh, the interwebs are really bad for attention. Amazingly, Grand Theft Auto, if you're interested in peripheral vision, Grand Theft Auto is great at training peripheral, I know. Terrifying, isn't it? I actually still don't recommend it, but if you want your students to be better at peripheral vision, video games are great at that kind of thing. Uh, the age might matter. The discipline might matter. That pinch to zoom program was really helpful in astronomy. Not so sure it's going to help with history, right? So the point is, when you think about a particular question, you're not going to find one study that answers the question. You're going to find whole groups of studies that answer smaller and smaller and smaller questions. And you're looking for several studies all pointing in the same direction that have to do with your students. I'm going to skip ahead a little. So if we can become increasingly optimistically contrarian, which is to say look for the negative case and break questions down into small pieces, perhaps we can fail to be sucked in by all the neuromyths that Joanna has so helpfully outlined for us. Thank you for listening to this Nice Ace Now podcast. Production support comes from Andrew Cook. Interview and conference support by Judith Sheridan and Barbara Swanson. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. For additional podcasts, as well as information about our conferences and other programming, please visit our website, nysais.org.